0: It's good to be back here and to be bringing God's word. Mossab Hassan Yosef is the eldest son of Sheikh Hassan Yosef, one of the seven founders of the Hamas. After being released from an Israeli prison, Yosef is walking past the Damascus Gate in Jerusalem. Someone, not knowing who Yosef is, invites Yosef along to a Bible study. Curious, Yosef goes along and he finds himself studying the New Testament. And at the end of the study, he's given a New Testament for himself. He has words, he says, I start at the beginning in the Gospel of Matthew and when I get to the Sermon on the Mount, I think, wow, this guy Jesus is really impressive. Everything he says is beautiful. I can't put the book down. Every verse seems to touch a wound, a deep wound in my life. It's a very simple message, but somehow it has the power to heal my soul and give me hope. And then I read this. You've heard that it was said, love your neighbour and hate your enemy. But I tell you, Love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, that you may be sons of your Father in heaven. I'm thunderstruck by these words. Never before have I heard anything like this. But I know that this is the message that I've been searching for all my life. For years I've struggled to know who my enemy is. It's a fascinating story. He actually works for the enemy at one stage. For years I've struggled to know who my enemy is and I've looked for enemies outside of Islam and Palestine. But I suddenly realised that the Israelis aren't my enemies. Neither is Hamas nor my uncle Ibrahim. He's one of these torturers of Yosef in the prison, one of his own relatives. Nor the kid, and this is an Israeli kid, the kid who beat me with the butt of the m 16 I understand that enemies are not defined by nationality, religion or colour. I understand that we all share the same common enemies, greed, pride and all the bad ideas that come from the devil. Ideas that live inside us. Five years earlier I would have read the words of Jesus and thought what an idiot and thrown the Bible away. But now everything Jesus says on the pages of this book makes perfect sense. And overwhelmed, Yosef started to cry. It's a very unlikely story, isn't it? But that's what God specialises in, unlikely stories. And that's where we start as we go to the Bible, as we look into Mark 16, an extremely unlikely story. Why is it so unlikely, this story of the resurrection? Well, it has to do, most of all, at the beginning with women. That's why it's so unlikely. It has to do with women. The role of the woman in the ancient world is the role of a second-class citizen. A woman wasn't even allowed to appear as a witness in court. She wasn't seen as reliable at all, as a witness. And yet, when Jesus is raised from the dead, who are the witnesses? Three women. Jesus chooses to appear, first of all, to women and not to a man. Two hundred years later, a pagan writer called Celsus, he argues with the Christian preacher Origen about this fact, this very fact. He calls the resurrection the gossip of women about an empty tomb. The gossip of women. That's how Celsus describes the resurrection. But Jesus chooses, first of all, to appear to women. The Gospel of Mark, if it were fiction, would develop in a different way altogether. Some of you may have read the work, Lloyd C. Douglas's work, The Big Fisherman. It it develops in a different way altogether. I use fiction in the classroom every day. Fiction goes a different line. Stories go a different line. If the story of Mark were fiction, it would develop something like this. You would have Peter, a fisherman, beginning to follow Jesus. And then this man has a number of adventures and fallings away. But in the end, he becomes a giant of a man. Peter, at the climax of Jesus' work, Who appears to him? Ah, Jesus appears to this man. And it's all hooray for Peter. But that's not the Bible. The Bible is different. God does different things. He's interested in doing things with little people, unlikely people. He goes to unlikely places. Would you ever have dreamed that the son of Hamas would become a Christian? and would love Jesus and witness for him, Yosef. Here are three fairly anonymous background people, we'd call them little women, and to them Jesus appears for the first time, risen from the dead. What about you this morning? Doesn't this give you hope? Isn't there hope for you this morning, that Jesus would reveal himself to a sinner like you? Not to the righteous and law keeping people, but to anybody and everybody. People who wouldn't even be a good witness in a court in the ancient world. Anybody. He came to Charlie in a snowstorm. Here are these three individuals who all hear and see something remarkable at the tomb where they'd seen the body of Jesus put to rest two nights earlier. Each one of them is old enough. Each one can speak for herself. Won't that make you consider these words carefully? If you'll do that, then you should also consider what happened later in the day. A dozen men in an upper room see and hear this same story. No, it's not a story. They see Jesus. Some days later there are a group out in a fishing boat, and they see a fire on the shore and they smell fish. And they not only listen to Jesus, but they eat with him. And then of course there is that famous part in, in Corinthians which talks so much about the resurrection, where there are five hundred people all at a meeting, and Jesus comes with them. It's a few days later. No, it's a week couple of it's what's well, about a week or two later. These are the kinds of reports that you come across in the Bible. But here in Mark 16, the account, it's the first report. The first report written about 20 years after the event. As we think of this report, are you listening carefully? This is the gospel. It's indispensably necessary to keep you going as a Christian. It's indispensably necessary if you're to start as a Christian. Lifeless listening to this incredible, this marvellous book gets us nowhere. Fathers, mothers, brothers, sisters, wives, children, friends, workmates all must be despised as compared to this gospel, when they're in competition with it. I'm not saying to despise your father or mother. But they must be despised if they're in competition with it. It's just so important. And that's what Joseph does, doesn't he? All his relatives and his famous father. He has to look past all that. This gospel is incredibly important. We must be ready to go through endless dangers and trouble to dig out those hidden treasures that are buried deep below the surface. Gold and diamonds are not found by any lazy miner just sitting there on the surface of the earth. The miner must dig and search and seek if he intends to find the treasure. And that's what I ask you to do as we come to our second point. What do we discover about these women? The Welsh preacher is very handy with this. He's got some very good headings. Jeff Thomas. These women are loyal women. They're devoted people. they followed the Lord Jesus for a couple of years and are not going to abandon him at Golgotha through those three hours of light and the next three hours of darkness until Jesus breathes his last. They have to wait at least a further hour until official permission has been given to take the body down from the cross. Two of the three women have followed the men as they carry the body of Jesus to the tomb. And these two have seen the men emerge from the tomb with some effort, probably with the help of their servants. And then they see this huge stone put across the entrance and the tomb secured. And then these women spend a long 24 hours until the Saturday night, after sunset, when the Sabbath is over and the shops open again and they can implement their plan to buy some more spices. They have to do something for Jesus. And occasionally there is this two-stage perfuming of the body. They certainly need to see his body so that they get up very early the next morning and off to the tomb to honour Jesus' corpse more appropriately than has been able to be done late Friday afternoon. What loyal followers of Jesus these women are. But they're worried women. Men worry, and so do women. They're perplexed. Look at verse 3, they have reason to be worried. They ask each other, Who will roll the stone away from the entrance of the tomb? The stone is put there to discourage grave robbers and so it's of some size and weight. Probably had a track, you've seen the pictures most of you, where the big stone fits in, a niche, a deep niche that's carved for the stone so that the whole stone first is lifted before it's pushed into that niche. It doesn't roll out easily like an Easter egg. It doesn't roll out easily like that. Mark tells us that the stone, verse 4, is very large so it would deter even a gang of grave robbers from raiding the tomb and taking anything that might be buried with the body. The women are carrying their bags full of spices and they're obsessed with making Jesus' body more fragrant fragment and they push out of their minds the very basic obstacle love is blind isn't it love makes people do silly things you forget about some things and you have a focus and you keep to that focus people in love will walk down the street where their loved one lives by chance that she might be coming out passing or he might be coming out passing these women, they think Jesus, uh, Joseph has a gardener. Oh, what's crossing their mind? We don't really know. They, maybe the disciples will be around to help them, but they're perplexed. This could be a place for the regathering of the disciples. Those men would succeed in rolling the stone away, wouldn't they? They never even consider that Pilate has put all these guards there. Roman soldiers at the sepulchre with an imperial seal on the chain, blind, making sure that stone stays there. Really, this is mission impossible. Dreamed and doomed just for dreamers. Doomed to failure. But loving loyalty compels them to go on. Worse still, at three unbelieving women, they are foremost among the women disciples of Jesus who are following him all around Galilee. We know from Mark chapter eight, you go back a few pages, Mark 8:31, Mark 8:31, Jesus has told his disciples that he would be killed, and after three days, rise again." Jesus didn't just say that once. Mark 9:31, He told them, "After three days, that he would rise. And then Mark 10, Mark 8, Mark 9, Mark 10, Mark 10, 34, Mark 10, go back to 33, Mark 10, 33. We're going up to Jerusalem, Jesus said, and the Son of Man will be betrayed to the chief priests and teachers of the law. They will condemn him to death and will hand him over to the Gentiles who will mock him and spit on him, flog him and kill him. Three days later, he will rise. I'm going to rise, Jesus says. There were probably other occasions when Jesus explains all this about his trial, death and resurrection. But they find it incredible to accept. Just as people here throughout Sydney, all over Australia, all over the world do the same thing, don't they? When you're dead, you're dead. People don't rise from the dead. These women love Jesus and they worship him. But he said some utterly impossible things to them. It makes no impact on them at all. Certainly they're not going to the tomb that first day of the week to have a first-hand view of Jesus' resurrection. They're going there to make the dead body smell a little sweeter for a day or two longer before it putrefies. That's their plan. And they're terrified women. When they get to the tomb, their problem about the stone has been solved. The gigantic stone is no longer covering the entry to the place where Jesus has been lying. Of course, Jesus doesn't need the stone rolled away. The stone's rolled away for us and for these women to look in. That's what it's for. Mary Magdalene, according to John, seems to have dashed off straight away to tell Peter and John that the tomb is empty. The other Mary and Salome stand still, not knowing what to do. And then they're joined by two other godly women, Joanna and another woman, so Luke tells us. And these four women finally go into the tomb itself, through the short entrance tunnel, into the inner room where the body has been placed on a shelf on the right side, and there to their amazement, they're met with nobody. But a young man, dressed in a white robe, verse 5, sitting on the right side. If you go to Luke, another man is with this young man. But one must be the spokesman. These men are very much alive. They're not ghosts at all. They're obviously not passers-by out for morning exercise. And notice the stone has been pushed aside and it popped in to see what's inside. No, that's not the case. They're special are dressed in white a mark of festivity mark of a wedding not of a funeral mark of celebration not of mourning mark of heavenly glory not of earthly fallenness Luke in fact tells us that their clothes gleam like lightning and they're waiting for these women to come along and to come inside and they've got the right words to say to them the very words that they must say The young man speaks with authority, but the women say nothing at all. In fact, Luke tells us that these women simply prostrate themselves before these angels, their faces to the ground, and a young man addresses them kindly. Don't be alarmed. You're looking for Jesus the Nazarene who was crucified? He has risen. He's not here. See the place where they laid him, but go, tell his disciples and Peter, he's going ahead of you into Galilee. There you will see him just as he told you. The whole astounding encounter is too much for them. This isn't a teenager or a student speaking to them. It's not an ordinary young man, trembling and bewildered, the women went out and fled from the tomb they take off like scared rabbits chased out of their burrows by a fox but they're silent women too aren't they they're crashing through the streets on their way to the upper room to talk to Peter and the apostles quite a sight if it were to happen in my hometown my mum and two of her friends going up the street seeing them running like that what would people say they would slow up Are you all right, Jesse, they would say to my mum. What's up? What's happened? Why are you moving so fast? Not like that at all. They said nothing to anybody because they were afraid. The angel had told them, the Lord through the angel had told them, go and tell his disciples that he is risen. That is the first commandment of the risen Lord that he's given them. But it's their first disobedience after his rising. They're too afraid to speak to anyone, just like we are so often today. Takes me to my last main point about the risen Jesus. The words of the young man in verse 6 are very, very important. Verse 6 Don't be alarmed, he said. You're looking for Jesus the Nazarene who was crucified. He has risen. He's not here. Breathe deeply. You're listening to a teacher. He can't help himself, he's got to teach you some grammar. In my classroom I can't put handwriting on the board, but I've got to teach some grammar at the same time. I make the most of any situation to teach grammar. The words was crucified, they're in the perfect tense. What happened at the cross is not just an event in the past. Yes, it has happened in the past. It is an event of history. But when we have the perfect tense in the Greek language, what happens? Well, we have this record of a cruel event in history, yes. But it's also something that has permanent significance. It's permanently relevant for the present, and for the future. Those words, was crucified, these tell us about God's continually efficacious answer to the deepest needs of every human being. Not just an event in the past, but the relevance is for here this morning, and for you tomorrow. That's why none of us should be afraid even in the most terrifying of situations. The Lord Jesus who went to the cross for us is not going to forsake us in any need in which we find ourselves. Can't do that. What he's done when he was crucified has permanent significance for any and every situation. He's already been into the worst situation for you. He will go into any situation where you find yourself He'll be right where you are. There alongside you, never leaving you. The Christ who went to the cross for us is not going to forsake us in any need in which we find ourselves. This living Saviour is here this morning. He's the Lord of all. And He speaks to us. And He says, I trust He's been speaking to you already. And he says, think of my infinite condescension and my love in my invitations and calls to you to come to me for life, for deliverance, for mercy, for grace, for peace and for eternal salvation. Multitudes of these invitations are recorded for you in your Bible and all of them filled with the fabulous encouragements which divine wisdom knows how best suited unto lost convinced sinners in your present state and in your condition. It's a great thought to dwell on the infinite condescension of grace and love of myself, says Jesus, in my invitations to sinners to come to me that they may be saved. I have that mixture of wisdom and persuasive grace that is in all of my invitations. I have that forceful, forceful effectiveness of pleading and argument that comes with my every invitation. Jesus Christ stands right now before sinners. He calls, he invites, he encourages you to come to himself. This is something of the word that he speaks to you. He says, why will you die? Why will you perish? Why won't you have compassion on your own soul? Can your heart endure or can your hands be strong in the day of judgment that is approaching? It is but a little while before all your hopes and your reliefs and your excuses will forsake you and leave you eternally miserable. Look to me, turn to me and be saved. Come to me and I will ease you of all your sins and your sorrows, your fears, your burdens and give rest to your souls. Come, I entreat you. Lay aside all procrastinations, all delays. Don't put me off any anymore. Eternity is at the door. Tomorrow has no promise that it can give to you. Tomorrow is eternity. Just hidden from your view. Don't put me off any more. Cut off all your self-deceiving excuses. Do not so hate me that you would rather perish than accept my deliverance, my rescue, my perfect salvation. Well, as I conclude, consider Jesus' infinite condescension and grace and love for you. Why does Joseph feel the power of Jesus' words? Because Jesus says the right words at exactly the right time to him. And he still does. He never makes a mistake. Does he ever stand in need of you? Does this risen saviour stand in need of you? Of course he doesn't. Have you deserved anything from his hands? Of course you haven't. Did you love him first? Of course you never did. Can't he be happy and blessed without you? Of course he can. Has he any design upon you that he's so earnestly calling you to come to him? Of course he does. He wants to welcome you to the family, the best, most wonderful royal family. Why does he want to have to do with you? It's nothing but the overflowing of his mercy, compassion and grace that moves and works in our living Saviour. Let's speak with him together. Lord Jesus, we thank you that you're here amongst us this morning, that you never leave your people. And we ask that each one of us, youngest and oldest, may truly belong to you that we may turn to you, that we may look to you and trust you and give over the burden of our sins and realise it's all been paid for and that you put into our account your perfect righteousness, that you really do care for us and that you'll never leave us. Oh Lord God, we thank you that you're a living God, that you're our contemporary And you're the eternal God too. You've always been and always will be. Now you go ahead for us. Your goodness and mercy and love chase after us all the days of our lives. And that we will dwell in your house forever. O Lord God, we magnify you. There is none like you. Help us to live for you and bring you praise and honour by our thoughts, by our actions, by our words in this coming week and we pray for the glory of your Son in his name, in Jesus' name. Amen.